Welcome to the Louisiana Equine Council Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. Today we have Dr. Eddie Kramer with us. He's going to talk with us about breeding and reproduction. Dr. Kramer is a 2002 graduate of the LSU School of Veterinary Medicine. He's a native of Crowley, and he runs the Louisiana Center for Equine Reproduction. He's an ET specialist uses recipient mares and all kinds of neat things. Dr. Kramer, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing very well, thank you. How are you? All doing well. We're probably going to be releasing this podcast at the start of breeding season, but I had to catch you on the off season here. So so we'll just pretend like it's February or something and, and the wheels <laughs> are starting to churn. First of all, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your background and, and what you're doing right now, where you're located? Sure thing. Sure thing. So, like, like you mentioned, I grew up uh, really in Roberts Cove, right outside of Crowley, and you know, graduated from Notre Dame. My, my father was actually started the, uh, the ag department at Notre Dame back in the mid-90s when, when I was there. And so he was an ag teacher for almost 40 years in Acadia Parish. And so uh, grew up in an agricultural background. We had horses, but really just kind of backyard horses. But uh, kind of had a passion for it and went to veterinary school and really got into the assisted reproductive work as, as a real big part of what I was doing. I've really enjoyed that aspect of uh, clinical practice, and it has grown well beyond what I really thought was, was ever, ever really possible. And so uh, at this point, uh, well, really back, I guess, in 2009, uh, I moved back to the region and bought some property and built a breeding farm that's now Louisiana Center for Equine Reproduction. We currently run about 500 recipient mares. We do, you know, about three, 400 embryo transfers every year, as well as oocyte aspiration. We stand uh, eight quarter horse stallions and a couple, and uh, really kind of an overall all-service all reproductive equine reproductive management. And really around that time that you were coming up through vet school and all that, that was kind of at the beginnings of embryo transfer as a modality, right? I can, I'm sure uh, that was some cutting edge stuff at that point in time and probably expensive beyond most people's means, but now it's, it's kind of become everyday practice. So that's pretty cool. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Well, would you explain to us a little bit about how are y'all utilizing recipient mares? What are some of the rules sure. that people may not be aware of there and and so sure. forth. Yeah, there are some variations in breed rules uh, as far as, you know, what's permissible breed by breed. The most obvious one, the best known one is, is in the thoroughbred world where really very few, really no assisted reproductive techniques are allowed, including artificial insemination, embryo transfer, anything like that. Most other breed registries have become pretty darn liberal about allowing these types of services uh, and seeing the value and and allowing these services to promote the genetics within their within their breed. But I'm no expert on on the individual breed registries. From a clinical perspective, from more of a medical perspective, the idea of what embryo transfer is is that we can breed a donor mare, a high value individual, to the stallion of, of the client's choosing. And then it's about seven days post-ovulation. In, in the case of a horse, you know, we don't know if a mare is pregnant at that point. But what we do is we place the catheter into our uterus and flush fluid through the uterus with the attempt to flush out an embryo that, that hopefully is there. We then filter the fluid that comes out of, of, of her, and we search within that fluid to, to locate an embryo. 
assuming the mare did actually conceive on that breeding attempt, then we would, we would attain that embryo. The whole time we were breeding the, the donor mare, we were also monitoring the, the reproductive cycle of the recipient herds that might, uh, of separate, excuse me, the recipient mares that may be lined up to her. Assuming we're able to find the embryo at the time of, of embryo recovery at, at, at seven days post ovulation, we would clean that embryo through a process of, of multiple washes and then place the, that embryo into a surrogate mare who, when everything goes well, would become pregnant with that embryo and carry that embryo on to term and ultimately deliver that, that foal as if it were her own. And, and she would raise the baby as her own. Genetically, she has no connection to, to the recipient. Obviously, the, the other parts of things, the, 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 the nurture versus nature kind of thing, uh, yeah, you know, it's certainly part of it that, that she would learn behavioral characteristics from, from the recipient. Well, I have to say, uh, in college, I wrote a paper on this, and I was really interested in the greater productivity of those superior mares. You can have a, a mediocre stallion, and he'll have 500 colts, and then you have the greatest mare in the world, and you're praying to get six or eight out of her. Sure. And modalities like this really help us to, to promote that from the bottom side where we can, we can really capitalize on those genetics. I think at this time, the quarter horse world allows – two foals registered per mare per year. And I may be wrong about that. I know there have been some lawsuits and things. My understanding of the quarter horse rules at this time is that that is an unlimited number of foals. In the racing, in the Louisiana bred racing within the L2HBA, you're only allowed to accredit a single foal per year, but there is no limit within the AQHA of how many foals can be registered to to a given individual. That's pretty exciting to me. I worked for a trainer when I was coming up apprenticing, and his saying was that stallions should be like the governor, one in every state. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're really looking at restricting some of those and, and getting those good mares out there. Fair enough. Um, would you have any any tips just for the lay person that may be interested in, in breeding a horse? What are some of the the common mistakes and things that you see people making that you you wish we knew better but we never seem to learn (laughs) so you know one thing you know we're starting off talking about embryo transfer which as you kind of mentioned it's certainly kind of a i would not describe it as a -a run-of-the-mill procedure where it's still there's a lot of science that goes into that it's still somewhat expensive uh, compared to just breeding your mirror letting her carry it's certainly not the cutting edge anymore i mean we are doing additional technique services that are well beyond embryo transfer at this point. But that being said, it all starts with just good husbandry and good mare management. You know, we talk about embryo transfer, the donor mare still has to conceive. And so, you know, we need to treat her just like we would if she were going to be carrying her own pregnancy. And what I mean by that, first thing that we, I talk to people about is, is, you know, breeding season really starts in the fall. That if you want, especially for those breeds and disciplines that are interested in particularly early foals, January, February, even March foalings, those mares, mares are naturally not made to be cycling in February and March. Mares are made to start cycling probably in April or even May. Uh, and, but the thing that controls that the most is, is daylight, is the exposure to light. And so we can, put, we can encourage mares to start cycling earlier by getting them under lights. 
my, my rule of thumb is that we start artificial lighting uh, on, a, on an open mare in the beginning of December. It takes about 60 days of additional light. And we're looking for 16 hours of photo period. So that basically boils down to the lights come on at sunset and they can go off at about 11 o'clock at night. The mare does not need 24 hours of light exposure to get her cycling. But if we do that, those mares typically start cycling within 60 days. So right around the 1st of February, they're getting going right at the same time that the stallion sheds are opening up and, and we're really getting cranked up. So artificial lighting, especially, and, and another kind of wrinkle to that, a lot of folks will tell you that, well, if your mare's having a, you know, is pregnant and can deliver a foal, you don't need to worry about lights. Again, if you're not worried about early foals, that's true. But many, many mares, if they foal in January or February, they might have one cycle after they, they foal. They may not. But then those mares will shut down. So I even put my early foaling mares under lights so that they can be prepared to keep cycling uh, and keep moving beyond delivery. General body condition is cannot be overstated, right? I mean, we can spend hundreds and thousands of dollars trying to work on these horses in so many ways. Mares that are, are just in generally good health, uh, they've got good, good body condition, they're on a high plane of nutrition, they don't have a lot of stress in their lives, those mares get, healthy mares get pregnant, right? It's nature, if she's not healthy, she doesn't need to be care. She doesn't need to be taking care of a baby while she's at it. Her body's going to reject that. So some of the very basic, simple things: good vaccination program, good dental program, good uh, deworming. Uh, those kind of basic things really set us up for success. And when those things are lacking, frankly, we spend a tremendous amount of money, and oftentimes we're chasing our tail. I'm going to pitch you a softball here. Um, <laughs> Would you find that we maybe have an obesity epidemic in the horse world in this particular day and age and go? <laughs> you know, it, you, you say that and it's funny. I work for a very diverse group of clients and, and certainly I have horses come in that, who they could take a few pounds off. At the same time, I still, still see people bringing me mares in, in February and March that have been in the pasture and, you know, I can start counting ribs and, most of those mares, you know, we're just not going to even start breeding those mares for quite some time. And, and so really getting with some knowledgeable horsemen, getting with your veterinarian, just taking good care of your horse. Can, I mean, animals are not made to get pregnant if they're not healthy. That's just life. So what percentage of your work would you say? You're, you're standing some thoroughbreds, which, which, of course, the the uh, semen collection and AI and, and all of that is off the, you can't, you know, you can't handle Everything's that. Everything's live covered some, guys. Yes, sir. So, so what percentage of your work is, is sort of these, these advanced techniques and, and which part of it, I guess, is just basic, just you know, and covers mare and, and we don't really have to yeah. do too much special. Yeah, I would say probably 50, 50. Um, you know, we, I, I'd still say, you know, that we see a lot of clients that just, want to breed their mare. And, you know, we, we stand stallions, we ship semen, you know, we do brood mare management. Um, and if you want to just have a pregnant mare, we're happy to do that for you or do what we can for you. But we do certainly a lot of embryo work. So I'd say it's probably 50-50. So we talked a little bit about the mare side. How about the stallion side? I know y'all y'all do semen preservation and, and shipping frozen semen or, or cooled semen. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
when we talk about, I, I really kind of compartmentalize it as two different things. When we're talking about kind of in-season breeding management, chip semen has become, cool chip semen has become a mainstay of, of quarter horse breeding, for sure, most breeds, really everything except the thoroughbreds, right? And that's where we're, we still have a veterinarian who's, synchron, who's timing a mare, who's monitoring her cycle, but let's say that mare lives out of state or, or, or she's being managed at another location, just the logistics are easier rather than trailering that horse halfway across the country to meet the stallion. We can collect the stallion, process and cool the semen. We can either FedEx that semen overnight or ship it same day and they can breed the mare where they are. And that's so widespread in, in the, the equine breeding world now. It's really not, but it, it gives you no comp component of long-term storage, right? The semen's good for about 24 to 48 hours. And then if the mare hadn't ovulated, you gotta do it again. When we talk about preserving genetics, we talk about freezing Semen and, and really embryos too has become a major part of what we do. By by by, and, and most of this is actually done outside of breeding season. Believe it or not, here we are in almost September, which is actually when we're filming this. We're still flushing mares and freezing their embryos. We're collecting stallions and freezing their semen because there is no seasonal component to that. Once either of those things has been frozen and preserved in liquid nitrogen they're good for a very extended period of time. I, I like to tell people, basically, we'll all be dead and those things will still be good. We're talking about decades kind of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things, the, the viability of post-thawed frozen semen has improved dramatically over the years. When, when I first got into practice, you know, somebody called me about breeding a mare with frozen semen and I'd put on all sorts of breaks and yeah, we can try if you want to, but it's not very good. Back then that was very true. Today, although there's still some variance in, in how good a, a stallion freezes, overall the average is much, much better. The timing of those breedings does have to be a lot closer. So there's a little more broodmare management that goes into it, but we get a lot of mares pregnant with frozen semen. And then kind of the next step of, of freezing embryos allows us to preserve the dam's genetics as well. And a lot of my clients, they're not necessarily freezing an embryo because they want to transfer it next year. They're freezing an embryo because they want to have the ability to produce a baby, a foal from this mare, maybe years after she's gone. So she gives us eight eggs a year for 10 years. That's, that's a lot of foals that we can <laughs> have. That's a lot of babies. We, we don't do much of that, or much on that level, but it's not uncommon that I'll have a client put away four or five, six embryos. A lot of analogies start getting made to the cattle industry. There are significant differences. Cattle, uh, because of some of the anatomical differences, are easily superovulated. Commonly, the cattle guys are, are producing significant numbers of embryos per flush. Six, eight, 10, 20, 30 embryos at a time. Basically, that's impossible with a horse. The way their ovary is made, it has a, a horse has a capsule on the outside of her ovary, and she can only ovulate one, maybe two follicles per ovary per cycle. So superovulation really isn't a thing in horses. Because of that, Basically, it's, it's, it's an embryo. It, we're, we're trying to get an embryo each try, you know, and so that is a real limiter on the magnitude of this, right? Now, that being said, it is, you can be dramatically more productive with it than you can with conventional, she's going to carry her baby. But when I look at sale books, 
Yes, there are brood mares who have produced 30, 40 babies in the course of a lifetime, which is would have been un- unheard of 20 years ago. Like you said, six or eight would have been a really productive mare back in the day. But that, that even that level of 30 or 40 is rare. I mean, significantly rare. Most of the time, you look at an older mare and her sale page, she realistically has produced 20, 25, 30 babies. But that's a lot more than six or eight, you know. Yes, sir. I can remember when I was apprenticing in the cutting horse business, we would have some of these $100,000 three-year-olds and you would ride her in the morning and she would go to the breeding barn to get flushed in the afternoon. And uh, before she's even shown, she's already got her reproductive cycle started, but it never had to interfere with her training. She didn't have to carry it. It's really exciting stuff to me. It 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 really is. is. It's fun. Uh And we're still doing a ton of that, quite honestly. I guess anecdotally, I ask you, are you a, a right-handed palpator or a left-handed palpator? Left-handed. Learn, left-handed. With, learn with your off-hand. That way your, your dominant hand can stay free to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yes, sir. I, I had one of my major professors had a car wreck, and he, he had to learn how to repalpate when he was about 60, mm-hmm. uh, which, was, which was a challenge. I, I watched him go through that period of frustration. He was, sure. he was not happy about that. but Yeah. Uh, you laugh about it, and, and I actually—it's you know, not—it's—it's it's a common understanding amongst those of us who do this. I probably personally palpate seven to ten thousand mares a year, all with my left hand. If I had to do it with my right hand, it would basically be like starting over. It'd be like I'd never done it. I'd have to learn it all over again. It's just—it's just different, you know. Yes, sir. Do and it's the only thing I do with my left hand. So, <laughs> 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 Do you close your eyes and Stevie wonder it, or or how does that work? <laughs> oh, you know, I just get pretty comfortable with it. <laughs> so <laughs> we got a little more technical into some of that stuff than I was anticipating. Okay. So, is there anything that I'm I'm missing that you would like to talk about, or anything like that? So one um, kind of what when we talk about what other technologies are available, one thing that you know some of the listeners may not be aware of yet is the uh, a procedure called ICSI, which is an acronym for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, because we veterinarians like to use big words, I guess. But the idea of this is really most, it's, it's really applicable in, in really two major scenarios. But it's a, the, technically, it's a procedure where instead of breeding the donor mare, allowing conception to occur in the donor mare, and then recovering an embryo, we're actually going in with an ultrasound guided needle and collecting eggs directly from the ovary. Those eggs typically are then shipped to a laboratory. Uh, and really there's, there's a handful of laboratories in the country that are offering this service. It's, it's an emerging technology. More labs are coming online every year now, but there's, they're certainly adequately supplying the market at this point. But the idea is that those eggs can be culture or, or, or matured in, in, in an incubator in the lab, single sperm cell is then used to inseminate each of those eggs, right? And then from that, they're producing embryos. And those embryos can either be frozen and, and preserved for an extended period of time, or they can be returned to a facility such as ours and transferred into the recipient mares fresh. The thing that's different between that, the kind of the why behind why would I do that versus an embryo transfer comes into two areas. One is we get to a certain group of mayors who have maybe have been productive embryo donors for an extended period of time, but you know, 
uh, I like to say mares are not like fine wine. They don't get better with age, right? And, and reproductive efficiency is always negatively affected by age. And so mares get to a point where they may not produce embryos anymore, or the amount of time and energy and medication that goes into producing those embryos, it's just not cost-effective anymore. And so the ability to recover those eggs and allow fertilization and conception to happen in the lab can actually be more cost-effective. And it can actually continue to produce embryos out of mares that have gotten to a point where they're not going to produce fresh embryos anymore. The other place that's really driven this this component of the industry is as stallions have become, has died, and we have a, a deceased stallion with very limited amounts of frozen semen, because the procedure literally uses a single sperm cell per egg, it can extend the usage of that frozen semen way beyond uh, what can be done with conventional artificial insemination. And so there's a number of stallions on the market today that their breeding doses are being sold as ICSI only, to where if, if you're going to breed to Pepto-Boom's mall, for example, the only contract you can buy on him is an ICSI contract. And so, um, so that has really brought this procedure much more into the mainstream of uh, equine reproductive technology, I'd say within the last five years. The, the technology has been around for probably close to 15 the, the efficiency of it has increased dramatically over the last several years uh, to where it's really become much more applicable and much more viable. Is there an option there for sexed semen? So, for instance, we can select whether we want to have a filly or a colt? Or- sure. That is, uh, with the ICSI procedure, that is certainly a much more realistic idea. I do not know anyone offering that commercially at this time. I know in bulls they do. One of the differences there, the, the number of sperm cells in a bull's ejaculate is much, much greater than that of a stallion. Uh, and so the idea of sexing semen is much more mainstream in cattle than it is in horses. And, and the limiter always was the dips, right? If I, if I sex the semen, typically the way to think about it is I'm going to have a, a, a quantity of cells that I know are, are going to produce male offspring, a quantity of sperm cells that I know produce female offspring, but there's going to be a group in the middle I'm going to waste a lot. And, and with traditional methods of insemination, the waste was so great that I was left with such small doses, it didn't make much sense to do the procedure. You're absolutely correct. With the advent of ICSI, I don't need to produce that many cells. And so while I don't know anyone doing it commercially right now, I do believe that uh, that technique on the mare side has actually created potentially a market on the stallion side as well. That, that's exciting to hear about. We could be to that one per state level here before long. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Incidentally, you had you had mentioned about ship seamen and the traveling and all. From what I understand, in Europe, they bring the stallions to the mare, which, as I understand, is the most effective way to train a horse to trailer load. Uh, that stallion <laughs> is happy to load up every morning. He he never is late for work. It, it is a very effective way to get him loaded in the trailer. <laughs> So, uh, hard to blame isn't it <laughs> well do you have any other tips for for our typical horsemen or, or any things that you 
you see in the equine industry in the state that you'd like to talk about concerns or things that you think have improved greatly, anything like that? Well, it's great to live and work in a state that has such a strong equine industry. Yeah, and in many ways, it's very diverse. Obviously, I think the racehorse industry gets a lot of the publicity. I'm certainly part of that. We service a lot of racehorse clients, and we're very grateful for them. But, you know, we have, I certainly enjoy working with my cutting horse clients and my halter horses and barrel racers and so many Arabians and, you know, such a diverse group of people. And it's really exciting. And I'm just grateful to be part of it, quite honestly. Yes, sir. Well, Thank you very much for coming on with us and doing the interview. It's been enlightening for me, and I'm sure it will be for our listeners as well. So we will put the information links to your website and all of that stuff in the show notes. So anybody looking for you will be able to find you. So We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you much. Thank you. Hopefully you're enjoying these podcasts and the information that they bring to you. We would just like to remind you that The more people we have join and support the Louisiana Equine Council, the more effective we can be as an advocate for the Louisiana horse industry and the people involved in it. We are the only organization that represents all breeds and all disciplines of Louisiana horses. Please check out our website. It's laequinecouncil.com. Join the organization. Keep up with what we do. And if you want to get involved, we'd love to have you on a committee or maybe on the board or something like that. We are always looking for more people to help and advocate for our Louisiana equine industry. We're also looking for sponsors of the podcast. So if you have or know of someone who has an equine related business within the state or that affects the state, we would love to have you as a sponsor for the podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so any monies that come our way can be tax deductible for you or your business. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Louisiana Equine Council podcast. I've been your host, Daniel Dauphin. Thanks for coming along for the ride.